This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of End Slavery Tennessee. This show exists to empower survivors of domestic human trafficking by telling their stories and educate listeners on what's really happening in their own backyards. I'm Leslie, your host. We've reached the season one finale episode, and there are so many stories left to tell and so many more myths to bust. To wrap our first season, we want to first thank you, the listener and supporter, for lending your ear and heart to the important work done at End Slavery Tennessee. Keep listening for even more. It's been an interesting and inspiring few months sharing survivor stories and busting myths about this issue. It's our hope that minds have been opened and hearts have been changed. We're truly grateful for your messages and your support. If you've had questions as you listen to this podcast, we have an event planned just for you. On Friday, August 28th at noon Central Standard Time, we're holding a live event with the podcast team, Leslie Gregory and I, and Enslavery Tennessee CEO Margie Quinn. To get information and sign up to receive updates, just go to the Enslavery Tennessee Facebook page and select the event tab at the top. You'll be able to submit questions during the event or you can submit them ahead of time using the link on the event page. Today we have another special myth-busting episode with submissions from several staff members of Enslavery. It's exciting to hear from this strong group of staffers focused on trauma-informed care, education, and understanding the actual realities of human trafficking right here, serving survivors. As with each of our episodes, please be advised that the content discussed is mature in nature and may be triggering to those who have walked through trauma. First, we hear from Kelsey Mize, Director of Survivor Care, about how survivors often don't realize their victimization at first. Here's Kelsey. The survivors we serve often don't recognize that they're survivors when they first come to us. In fact, most don't even recognize that they're victims. This is often due to the intense shame that they're carrying and the belief that the terrible experiences that have happened to them are a direct result of their actions and their choices. That idea has been reinforced to them over and over by their trafficker in an attempt to control and manipulate them into not seeking help. So much of the work that we do is help the survivors let go of the shame and guilt that they're carrying help them to begin to unpack and understand their victimization, and then empower them to transition from a victim to a survivor. We aim to help them understand that they did not deserve the horrible things that were done to them. Drug addiction, criminal histories, dangerous lifestyles, these are all examples our survivors use as justification for why they deserved their trauma. We work to help them understand that those decisions were coping skills that served to protect them in those moments, and that they can begin to forgive themselves and learn from those experiences. The transition from victim to survivor happens once he or she is able to identify that they were victims of the trauma that they have experienced, once they can acknowledge that they've survived it, and once they feel empowered to take back control of their future. For some, this looks like testifying against their trafficker in court. For others, it looks like going through detox. And for some, it looks like creating boundaries with family and friends who took part in their victimization. Each survivor's healing journey is unique, and through survivor support groups, specialized therapy, and intensive case management, survivors learn healthy coping skills and receive the support they need to reach their individual goals. 
We'll now hear from End Slavery Tennessee's office manager, Lee Ellen Starks, about how helpful in-kind donations can be or not. The myth I want to share is around in-kind donations. These are gifts like clothing, furniture, supplies, and things like that. I think when it comes to nonprofits, there is this widely accepted belief that any and all in-kind donations will be helpful purely because they're goods that we didn't have to spend dollars purchasing. Don't get me wrong, we are absolutely thankful that donors think of us when they have items to donate, but I want to share some examples of times we have had to reject donations and why. We often get inquiries about donating used clothing. One of the few nice things traffickers buy victims is new clothing. That's because it makes the victim easier to sell. Then, when a victim becomes a survivor at end slavery, it doesn't help their transition out of their old life to be offered old, used clothing. This isn't about greed or luxury. It's about giving a trauma victim every reason to want our help and trust that we will care for them. And beyond that, we simply don't have the in-house logistics to process loads of incoming used clothing. Organizations that continually receive those kinds of donations have to have people to process the donations, a sorting area, storage space for the kept clothing, and a process for donating elsewhere or disposing of the unusable items. All of that takes manpower and honestly space that we just don't have at this time. Those logistics can also be an issue for donated furniture and appliances as well. Coordinating deliveries and installations to a, quote, safe house makes it difficult to keep the location of the safe house unknown. Speaking of the safe house, we endeavor to always use trauma-informed care with the survivors we serve. So every aspect of our program and what they experience while in our care, we hope will be healing and not cause further trauma or triggering. From that standpoint, many of our survivors were not given any choice by their trafficker as to what they would like to wear or about pretty much anything else. We like to give the power of choice back to the survivors in every element of our program, including the choice of clothing and toiletries and things like that. It is powerful and healing to give a survivor a gift card and let them choose, for example, their own clothing, food, or items for their room. Even when we get inquiries about donating new clothing and shoes, we will always ask for a description of the items. Clothing that is considered overtly sexy in our society can be triggering to our clients because it can be a reminder of what they were forced to wear when trafficked. Now, another type of donation that I was even surprised to find we do not accept is any travel-sized toiletries. This can be a trigger for the survivors who lived and worked out of hotel rooms. It also gives a message of temporary and obviously travel, which reflects on the transient nature of how some survivors were moved around often. You will regularly find full-size toiletries on our Amazon needs list for this very reason. We want survivors to feel welcome to stay with us and know that they have a safe home and continued stability. I know these are things that the average person would not expect or intend when offering to donate items. That's why I'm sharing this today. We all have different life experiences, and the truth is that some donations are more harmful than helpful to our community. 
Now, please hear my heart. We love in-kind donations and welcome them, but this is why we ask questions prior to accepting or rejecting what is offered. Next up is our resident manager, Lisa Tonkin, discussing a few things often misunderstood about life in our safe house. One safe house myth I'd like to bust is that every client who comes into the safe house immediately feels safe and is thankful for what we are providing. As you may have heard from our survivor interviews on our podcast, there's still this you don't get something for nothing mentality. Sometimes it's really hard for survivors to believe that we will provide things like food, shelter, medical, and therapy with no expectations from them other than to take the time to focus on their healing. Why should they trust us? They've seen this before. Time and time again, someone has given them something and it turned out to be a trap. One example is the stipend. So we give our safe house clients a weekly stipend just so they have some pocket money. You know, money for little things like makeup or a drink at the gas station. Just a little personal spending money. Sometimes when survivors are offered a stipend, their expression changes. They're very untrusting of free money. Often I'm asked, what do I have to do for this? And I tell them they don't have to do anything for it. One survivor literally broke down crying. She rarely had money to spend however she decided and on things she wanted. Another survivor would sign for her stipend every week, but wouldn't really spend it because she was so sure we would be asking for something in return. I think after a few weeks, she said to me, Man, I just want you to know that I've been really scared to spend this because then I would owe you something. She didn't trust that the money was hers to spend as she liked and that we wouldn't come around later to call in a favor. I had another survivor tell me, you're giving me $30 for the week? My pimp made $1,000 a week off me, and he would give me $10 for the week to feed myself. This feels like a million dollars. I also hear things like, I can't believe I'm walking down the hallway to my own bedroom and I'm safe. Or, I can't believe I'm going to my own bed and I'll be able to sleep safely without waking up to someone next to me. I can't believe there's a kitchen full of food that I can just eat. At first it made me feel good to hear them say things and grateful that we were able to provide these things for them. I'm like, yes girl, we want you to feel safe. We are so happy that you're here. Eat what you want. Take a long hot bath. Sleep good tonight knowing you're safe. But the tone in which they said it helps me understand how overwhelming this can all be. These words are often followed up with, I don't deserve this. This is what we often see with new residents. I think the transition from exploitation from the life to a safe place is difficult for survivors. You go from having everything in your life being controlled, you know, your food, your movements, your existence, to being put somewhere safe and given basic necessities, things like personal hygiene items, clothing, a home, food. A survivor is thinking, how am I expected to react to all of this? Do I have to pretend to be thankful and grateful so they don't kick me out? I don't trust this. I don't trust them. And I don't trust myself. It takes time, patience, compassion, and consistency to help our safe house women settle in and feel deserving. And eventually, most of them do. But for others, it's just too much. The amount of damage their lifetime of trauma has caused can't be overcome in that instant of leaving a dangerous situation one minute to a safe environment the next. I'm just really thankful we can offer a safe space to begin their healing. A time to stabilize without having to worry about paying bills or basic needs. A space with the love and support of our direct service staff. Meeting them where they're at and supporting them through it. Whether it's doctor's visits or court hearings or just sitting with them in the evenings when all they want to do is run and get high. Helping to build trust that they are indeed in a safe place and more than deserving of all in slavery has to offer. And now we'll hear from Shelby Brown, 
She's the Director of Finance and Administration. She's going to tell us about the misconception of child prostitution and how there's no such thing. I would like to discuss the myth of child prostitutes or teen prostitutes, the idea that children or youth choose to be sold for sex. I'm sure we have all heard the term child prostitute before and maybe haven't thought twice about the wording or what it really means. According to the legal definition of human trafficking in the United States, per the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, sex trafficking is occurring in a situation in which a commercial sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion, or in which the person induced to perform such an act has not attained 18 years of age. This means that any minor used for commercial sex is legally a victim of human trafficking. That means sex in exchange for anything of value, money, drugs, a sandwich, or a place to stay for the night, for example. When it comes to minors involved in commercial sex, the question is not why a child would choose that type of work, but who is manipulating and exploiting the child and putting them in that situation. Traffickers can often make more money selling younger girls rather than selling an adult and therefore have financial incentive to look for minors to exploit. Minors cannot legally enter into a contract, drink alcohol, purchase cigarettes and guns, or even sit next to the emergency exit on a plane. We recognize that children are not developmentally capable of making the informed decisions needed in these cases, so they certainly are not able to consent to work in the commercial sex industry. The adults who sell and purchase children are the criminals, and the children and teens involved are victims of the adults' criminal behavior and abhorrent choices. Human traffickers prey on their victims and use the vulnerabilities of children to control and to manipulate. The language we use when discussing minor victims of human trafficking is crucial. Language has power and the words we use can be ones of victim blaming or of placing the blame solely where it belongs, on the traffickers and the buyers. Calling a minor victim of human trafficking a child prostitute is a loaded phrase with the implication they had some sort of a choice. There is the implication that maybe they are not truly a victim. A child does not choose abuse. They are not responsible for being bought and sold for sex. Not seeing them for the victim they are only serves to protect the criminal and predatory buyers and sellers of human beings and does a grave disservice to the children who are victimized. Considering all this, it is important to reframe our thinking from one of choice to viewing it as a situation where adults are exploiting children and teens and buying and selling them for sex. There is no such thing as a child prostitute. And finally, let's hear what intervention coordinator Tia Bowden shares about how difficult it can be to ask for help, what she sees with each intake story, and how common the fear of not being understood is. Let's all take a second to reflect on how difficult it can be to ask for help in our everyday lives. Reservations can come from fear of judgment of not being good enough or lazy, fear of the job not getting done to its highest potential, or even a fear of our pride being threatened. Whatever our reasons may be, we have them. These are exactly the things that I think of every time I complete an intake. I see the strength in every survivor that I encounter and know that asking for help doesn't come with ease. Yet every time, I'm shocked at how much these survivors teach me with their stories. For some, it's the first time that they have sat down and had someone listen. For others, they've recited it so many times, it's almost like a script. 
No matter what the circumstance, it boils down to a single fear, not being understood. Countless times I hear, I know this sounds crazy and unbelievable when I get the privilege of doing an intake. I thank them all for telling their story and acknowledge their strength in the moment. I take pride in being able to say that I exist to hear you out and see how we can help. That's the thing about in slavery, Tennessee. We are experts in our field because we allow these survivors to be our teachers. I can recite every intervention model that I learned in school, but the real knowledge comes from our clients. You don't have to understand everything that a client has been through, but you must be willing to learn from them. You must be willing to hear these stories and see the strength. As I'm sitting across from a potential client, commonly hearing their doubts and my willingness to believe them, I feel so honored to explain In Slavery Tennessee and how we can help. The look of relief when they hear that In Slavery is a unique agency built to fight a battle that others were not even aware of existing is unforgettable. If you are worried to tell your story and fear that no one will believe you, know that at In Slavery Tennessee, you have ownership of your story and we exist to hear it out and see how we can empower you. To those of you who are not survivors, you can empower our clients daily, just as the staff at In Slavery Tennessee does, by simply having a willingness to learn. The importance of understanding this crime and its red herrings becomes apparent when social media surges with new rumors of zip ties on cars, conspiracies, or other stories that cause concern. When we learn the truth about how this crime is being perpetrated by and large in this country, we're better prepared to help. If you have any questions about human trafficking, there's a great opportunity coming up in which you can ask experts in the field. Our live Q&A on In Slavery Tennessee's Facebook page will feature both Derry Smith, founder of the organization, along with CEO Margie Quinn, who has spent many years in law enforcement working to fight against trafficking. You can ask about specific episodes or general things that you don't quite understand about human trafficking. So join us August 28th at 12 p.m. Central on In Slavery Tennessee's Facebook page, and we're going to celebrate a full season of telling survivor stories and shedding light on human trafficking myths. Also, if you'd like to be a part of what In Slavery Tennessee is doing, consider joining us for the annual Voices of Freedom event held virtually on October 1st. Join together with your quarantine pod to sponsor a table in the comfort of your own home, which includes 10 meals from Loveless Cafe and access to the virtual program. We'll be premiering original monologues based on survivor stories, and there'll be a musical performance from Raquel Cole. And I'll get to be your host for the evening. If your organization would like to get involved, there are a number of ways to partner with us in this event. Head over to enslaverytennessee.org for more information, and we'll see you October 1st. And Slavery Tennessee thanks Jones Legacy Group for their continued support and exclusive sponsorship of this first season of Someone Like Me. Executive producer is Derry Smith. Producer and editor is Gregory Byerline. Music by Kurt Goebel. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>